Greetings to the brightest audience in the country. This is Real Science Radio. I'm Fred Williams. And I'm Ryan Williams, creation speaker and software engineer. So Ryan, there's a pseudoscience claim that's been festering on the internet for some time. And I hope today we can lay it to rest. And that's this claim that our GPS systems would not work without Einstein's special and general relativity. So unfortunately, this urban legend has even made it into creation circles and used by our fellow Christian brethren. In fact, we're going to be going through a creation magazine today. There's some really great articles in this magazine, but I did want to start with one where I did take issue with one of the points made in one of the articles. And that again, is this thing about GPS not working unless relativity is true. And if you remember, I spent several years as a team lead at Trimble and I was the software lead of their telematics department. And we built GPS devices for heavy highway equipment, and our biggest customer was Caterpillar. Our uh, software would help track their vehicles. They could create zones and know when their vehicles drove off the, the work site, things like that. So based on that experience and what I know from GPS, I know that this claim isn't true, and so many people often repeat it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've kind of talked about this before, just in personal conversations too, so it, it'll be kind of cool to talk about it now What there's like an actual article about it, and then you can use some of your expertise and because relativity is always then you know it's just a strange thing no matter who yeah. you are so it'll be it'll be fun to get into it a little bit yeah for sure relativity is always a it could be a difficult topic special relativity was started by einstein that was the first version that later general relativity came along and really the whole thing behind relativity basically is that time is relative however this particular show we're not going to be dealing with special relativity or general relativity as a problem. We do disagree with those theories. Real Science Radio has for years. We know that's a very controversial topic, but we're not that alone in this. You know, I estimate just based on the people I know in our circles that maybe 20% of us have questions or problems with special and general relativity. So it's not like we're this crackpot one in a thousand that wants to argue against it, but that's not what the show is about. Instead, when we dive into this article, it's whether or not GPS requires special and general relativity. They claim that GPS systems is evidence for those two theories, and it's not. It just simply isn't. It does not work. The engineering doesn't support that. So, Ryan, we're going to get into that right away, and we won't forget to get into the interesting fact of the week. I got a good one today that I want to run by you that I think it'll be a little bit more personal for you and you'll see why you have no idea what I'm going to ask you. <laughs> I just think you love these because you're the one with the buzzer. <laughs> That's right. I'm looking forward. Hey, you may get this one right, but we'll see. Someone's getting power hungry over there. I can, I can tell. <laughs> yeah. So anyways, back to GPS and relativity. So the article in the creation magazine, it makes again, this reference to GPS relying on relativity And it's an otherwise well-written article by a lady named Donna Molinax. She has a master's of science degree from Clemson University. And I know she did her undergraduate work at West Virginia in physics. So she actually begins the article with a very good description of what special relativity is. 
Yeah, you know, she opens up talking about the, the twin paradox example, which is a good kind of way to get an idea of what it is. And it was a just kind of a, it's not like I've actually ever done this experiment, but it's like a thought experiment that Einstein kind of proposed where basically you have two identical twin people and you send one of them into space for some amount of time and then the other one stays on Earth. And then, you know, after the elapsed amount of time, in the way the theory would go is the twin in space comes back and then they see that the twin on Earth has aged a lot more because both the gravitational and velocity relativity would play an effect on the time that the astronaut twin experienced and he'd come back to Earth and his brother would be like years older than him and he yeah. would still be in his you know youth so that's kind of the idea there and obviously you know like that wouldn't be in the theory of relativity that wouldn't be possible on earth but the idea would be just like that is something that could happen somewhere depending on what the gravitational force is like and the um, velocity the astronaut be moving and all these different things that come together yeah and i think it's primarily if i'm not mistaken is you know the velocity traveling away from earth that the clocks are going to run slower that so-called time would be running slower and it's interesting that this has come up because you know my best friend from high school he just got back from washington dc and he was at a birthday party for the astronauts scott and mark kelly in fact you met scott mm -hmm. kelly at pat's house i don't know last summer i think so scott kelly was on the international space station and his brother was home and mark kelly is a senator from arizona so anyways they use that as an example of hey you know Scott Kelly would have aged a little slower, not by much, because obviously we're not talking, you know, speed of light, distant, you know, travel time. But anyways, they like to use that as an argument for special relativity as kind of an antidote for it, really, because it's not proof and there is no way to know that one really aged more than the other. Because mm -hmm. um, it is just a thought experiment after all. It's not Yeah, right. and, you know, there's claims of, with special relativity that, again, we won't get into this show that... There are evidences that make it appear that special relativity has been confirmed. There's also some evidence against it that really kind of gets poo-pooed or not talked about. I'm really looking forward to a show on that. But Ryan, this is, we're talking about GPS. And I wanted to mention, and by the way, again, she wrote a really good article as far as if you want to understand how, you know, special relativity works. She has a really good opening to this and provides a good explanation. But she has this one part that she gets to where she goes, our smartphone maps depend on global position system time signals from such clocks on satellites. These need to be calibrated to compensate for the effect of time running a little faster for the clocks on the satellite than here on Earth. If not, map locations would accumulate an error of about 400 meters, which is about 450 yards per hour, making them useless. So there are definitely problems with that claim, and I'd like to go ahead and jump in on those. Mm -hmm. So there's a guy named Bernard Burchell who wrote a really good article on the internet. And I suspect he's worked in the telematics industry as I did. He's got some really good points on how these claims aren't true. And there's a basic misunderstanding of how GPS works and how engineers solve the GPS problem. Because we agree that clocks do indeed run faster at altitude. Now, whether that's because of gravity, that's fine. But that doesn't mean you have to agree with general relativity and the effects of gravity. 
We do admit or we agree that the evidence does support that clocks run faster. And notice mm -hmm. I said clocks run faster in space, not time itself. We do not believe time is relative. You have to ask why the clocks run faster. Exactly. Are they running faster because time is, or are they running faster because there's some physical force on the clock that changes its the way it operates? You just yeah. don't know. As an analogy, you know, imagine a grandfather clock like the one we have in our house. And if you have that clock and you put it up in space and there's less gravity acting on that pendulum arm and maybe it's going to tick mm -hmm. faster. And so that clock itself will run faster. Yeah. And obviously so, the clocks are putting up there the atomic clocks, but you still don't know if, if it's just the gravitational force or some other force that's yeah. affecting the clock. Exactly. And we again, we'll get into that in a future show because one of the inventors of the atomic clock doesn't believe relativity has anything to do with he doesn't agree with special or general relativity but again that's another story so bernard birchall makes these points in presenting this argument about gps and he supports our viewpoint that gps does not rely on relativity so he says point one relativity theory predicts the clocks aboard the gps satellites will run faster than clocks on earth by about 38 microseconds a day so very small amount but there will be an effect the satellite's clocks are slowed down by this amount so as to match the speed of clocks on the Earth. Because GPS needs to measure, there's a measurement mechanism that goes on where you've got speed of light and time's distance, and then you've got satellites where you try to triangulate to determine a position. Mm -hmm. Okay, so point three, if these adjustments were not made, position determination would be inaccurate by up to 11 kilometers a day. We disagree with that. And point four, this inaccuracy would grow steadily larger each day. After 10 days, the inaccuracy would have grown to 110 kilometers. Okay, so that's essentially the same claim that's made in Mrs. Mullinex's article. So I'll just get right to the main point of why this isn't true. So we know from the GPS satellite experts, the people who are the pioneers of GPS, such as Tom Van Flandern and a guy named Ron Hatch and other guys like this. Ron Hatch was an, actually an engineer who worked on this. You're an engineer and you're actually looking at the data and you're working at it and you're seeing how it works. That's, the, that's where the rubber meets the road. It's no longer just theories and physics. You're actually proving these things out. Interestingly, Ron Hatch, who was a Christian, he recently went to be with the Lord, I think a couple of years ago. He actually argued that GPS disproves special relativity. Again, we're not going to get into that. But bottom line is, he's one of the foremost pioneers, and he said relativity had nothing to do with GPS, because here's what happens. When they send the satellites into space, and this is all software that's classified, so we can't get our hands on it. You have to work for the government or have special security clearance to even see that software. These guys who were involved in it said all they did was they put a fudge factor in there to slightly run the clocks on the satellite slower to account for this effect. That's all they did. So every satellite that's launched has a piece of software that slightly slows down the clock. It's a fudge factor, okay? So then what happens is at some frequency, probably every day, maybe even more often, ground stations continually synchronize the clocks on all the satellites, to keep those clocks the exact same. So that's really all you need. You don't need relativity equations running on those satellites, and you don't need relativity equations running on your GPS receivers. 
you know, the phones we have, our cell phones, those are all have a GPS receiver in them. Trust me, they don't have an atomic clock. You know, those hmm. things are expensive and they're just, they're not there. Some receivers do have them, but by far most don't. So whenever GPS calculations are made, as long as all those clocks, satellite clocks are synchronized, you don't have to account for relativity in the receiver. Now, I mentioned this to a creationist who was skeptical of my claims. And so he pulled up this spec that I had seen, already knew about. It was a government spec on GPS. And there's an equation in there that they say to use in receiver logic. Then he showed me some open source GPS receiver code and showed me how they're applying it. I'm like, great. I would do the same thing as an engineer at Trimble. I'm not going to not do it, but I know that it has very little effect. So I said, hey, this is a perfect test. You work for a company that is involved in GPS. If you can get your hands on that software somehow, or if anybody listening wants to do an experiment, you want to build your own GPS receiver, there is open source code out there. Go into that one routine, and I can show you where it's at if you can't find it, and comment out the code that does this relativistic logic. And you'll find out that it's within the noise of the GPS signal, and your accuracy will still be within like three meters, which is what most GPSs are spec to. Three meter accuracy. It's not going to affect it that much. Yeah, fine, go ahead and do it. But guess what? You're not going to accumulate this error that claims are made of like 400 meters an hour, things like that. That mm -hmm. does not happen. And the reason it doesn't happen, again, the main point here is that ground stations, that again is software controlled by the government, we can't see it, but we know they tell us. That's synchronizing all the satellites. In fact, I've found memos that were sent to the Air Force by physicists saying, you're not taking into account special relativity. It's interesting to see those conversations because some physicists are complaining, yet GPS still works. That in itself disproves this whole idea that GPS requires yeah, you yeah. Know, special relativity equations. And even if the you have them- mad that they're not using them and it works just fine. Yeah, exactly. You know, as Tom Van Flanders said, it spot. just works. He just mm -hmm. he said, you know, it just works. They applied this fudge factor to the software that goes up in these satellites and it makes the whole system works. So if you had to do relativistic math on the satellites to account for, you know, because it's traveling in space at a certain speed, nowhere near the speed of light, of course, so it's a very small effect. But if you had to try to account for all these different things with the satellite motion, its altitude, things like that, and do the relativistic equations in those satellites, that'd be super complex. And you just don't need it, it's overkill. And so I hope this made sense, Ryan, of how GPS does not rely on special and general relativity to be able to work. You just need to synchronize those clocks in the satellite. Mm -hmm. It almost makes you think too, again, a topic for a different show, but if time really was moving at a different rate and it wasn't just clocks, you'd think you probably would need those super complex equations because that'd be something to have to take into account. But in reality, all you do have to do is just make sure the clocks are in sync and make sure that you're taking into account the little bit of difference in the way the clocks run and then... Yep. Anyways, uh, that's pretty much it for that particular article. The article is well-written again. It, it presents the topic well. It just has this urban legend that is all over the internet. I hear it all the time. I hear it from people who, who argue for special relativity and general relativity. And it's that particular argument doesn't fly. It's not true. The GPS supports the theory, the two theories of relativity, of general and uh, special relativity. So, okay, Ryan, before we get to the rest of the articles, hmm. we have to do our interesting <laughs> fact of the week. 
So here we go. Are you ready, Ryan? I'm ready. Let's do it. Okay. According to the Schmidt Insect Sting Pain Index, I told you this would hit home, <laughs> which insect has the most painful bite? Hmm. Like, do I get a multiple choice or do I just got to try is, it? I tell you what, go ahead and just try it and then I'll come up quickly in my mind a multiple choice. Is it a... The most, the most painful bite. Yes, so the most a, painful bite so a bee of an insect. Because they, they sting, they don't bite. So no, that, no that can count. A sting oh. can count, so it's not a trick question. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. Which insect has the most painful sting or bite? What about a bee? Okay, you're going with the bee. <laughs> Your favorite I knew you were going to love that thing. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so you hmm. know it's not the bee. I'll try to give you a multiple choice and come up with ones Wait. in my head. Okay, um, A, the wasp, B, the dragonfly, C, granddaddy longleg, D, the ant. Hmm. So now you've got a 25% chance. Better than last week's, Doug had a 50-50 chance and he still blew it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've heard that the, they always say that the the daddy long leg like has all the a lot of venom but it can't like it doesn't have long enough fangs to like you know release it yep. so i'm not gonna say that okay. i also heard that was i thought i heard somewhere that was actually a myth but who knows okay so, so we're rolling that. him out and then there one was the ant yeah i mean people love to talk about how bad the you know red ant bites are i think i bit by one of those once and it wasn't that bad so i'm gonna <laughs> rule that one out okay and then what was the, so it was the wasp and the dragonfly? Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you already passed up the one that it actually is. Was it a? It's the bullet ant. Oh, if, okay. Okay. <laughs> the bullet ant. Yeah. And this Schmidt guy, he's gotten stung by so many different things. So he came up with this index and he said, it's pure, intense, brilliant pain. Like walking over flaming charcoal with a three-inch nail embedded in your heel. <laughs> <laughs> so anyways, he claims it's the bullet ant, so let's try to avoid those things. And, uh, Good so to know. Good I, to the know. reason I... Now, why did I say this might hit home with you, asking about insect bites? I might have some history with getting stung, yeah. perhaps. <laughs> it's remarkable how much bees liked you growing up. I mean, yeah, luckily now... Yeah, you tell now, me, it's like, oh, don't bother that bee, and it's not going to sting you. Yeah. yeah, sure. And I stand there, mind my own business, and it attacks yeah, you. Yeah, you were like, I don't know, I can't remember, eight, nine, ten years old. And I, I still see it. I picture it in my head. You're by this bush. And I'm like, oh, those bees don't sting. And that thing saw you and just went right to your arm and stung you. It's it's remarkable. You had some flavor or yeah, smell something or something like. that just attracted you. You were like pollen to them. It, yeah. You were probably disappointed when it didn't get any, but <laughs> you weren't too happy. <laughs> Okay, so Ryan, what do you want to start with on some of the great articles in the Creation Magazine? Um, there are a bunch of good ones in it this time. One that we could start with is something that we've talked about before on the show, so it's kind of cool to have a article in the focus section about it, was the discoveries by the James Webb Telescope and how they've discovered some galaxies that have the spiral form, like the Milky Way, that they don't expect to have that spiral shape. Yep. So the James Webb Telescope's been just a great boon for creationists, and we predicted that this is exactly what they'd find. We knew that they would, that they'd find these already old galaxies, 
that aren't supposed to be there. They're supposed to be peering back to the start of the universe, and yet you've got these fully formed galaxies. What's up with that? I mean, they can't explain that. So that's been one of the great finds. So that article, mm-hmm. and what's the title of that article? They or call focus it, section? They call it Spiral Galaxies That Shouldn't Exist. Yep. And yeah, we don't have to get too into it because we've talked about this before when it's appeared in other articles we brought up. But just cool to see in, in Creation Magazine now, something we've talked about before. And really good finds because it's a tough it's a tough one to explain away because like you say you're supposed to be looking back to the beginning of the universe yet you see these fully formed galaxies it'd be like if you could look into some crystal ball or something back in time and you you know see fully formed human beings you know from when evolutionists say that there were no living creatures on earth it'd be you know we know why that would be because it's god created things mature he didn't create things as little babies to grow up he created things mature so we we're not surprised but it is a tough one for them to explain yeah time and time again on this show we're always presenting evidence from the secular science that just goes against their view and it's like it's all the time it's like when are they going to get the idea that maybe their theories are wrong that their standard (laughs) model of cosmology is wrong that big bang is nonsense that there's actually better explanations And that's why we say that really a lot of secular science is just a religious belief. Their religious beliefs are being foisted on to what they claim. And then when they observe and it contradicts what they believe, they just either make excuses or just move on or they ignore it. It's Mm -hmm. it's, uh, remarkable. You know, we had James Tour on last couple weeks and just the whole origin of life and how they pretty much ignore that they poo poo it and yet chemists know and we've had dr royal truman on too on that same very topic you know he said that, that he doesn't know a single chemist you know sharing a beer at the bar that claims that there's evidence for origin of life they think the evidence must be somewhere else you know but they can't find it there in their own field but they somehow want to believe it is proven somehow in some other way but that's religion not that's not mm-hmm. science so, oh yeah Because it really is just faith. It's faith and belief, even though they don't want to call it that because they don't like that word. That's really what it is. It is faith because they they got nothing on the origin of life. They got nothing. So they just got to believe it. Exactly. And it's a blind faith, unlike ours. Faith, Mm -hmm. our faith is defined in the Bible from Hebrews 11.1, is the evidence of things not seen. Mm -hmm. So ours isn't a blind faith. It's an intelligent faith. So what's next, Ryan? Yeah, so another, I guess we can keep the space theme going because that's where... That's where we spent most of our time today. But uh, there's another article titled Planets Floating Two by Two. And this one was just kind of interesting as a discovery, but also another just kind of knock against the proposed idea of how planets form is you have these two planets that they've discovered that are floating through space next to each other just kind of by themselves. There's no, you know, it's not like most solar systems that we're aware of where there's like a star in the middle and the planets rotate on the stars. It's these two planets that are just kind of chilling out they must love each other because valentine's day was last week there they're in love <laughs> okay but yeah. they uh they call them jumbos which is a jupiter mass binary object i guess you know kind of kind of a good name because they're very jupiter-esque because they're gaseous planets but the reason it's in here and it's interesting is this is a problem for just the accepted secular idea of how planets form and that you need a star and you need the gravitational forces to pull in, you know, all the different matter. And that's just, these two things are yeah, how do you explain? literally living evidence that that doesn't have to happen. 
Now, how do you explain two of them together? And one of the things they mentioned in this particular article, it says that the current leading contender to explain this is that they were ejected from the star system in which they formed. So this is what one of the secular scientists said. He says, but how do you kick out pairs of these things together? And this is from European Space Agency's senior science advisor. Right now, we don't have an answer. How many times do we hear that from them, especially on this whole web telescope stuff? Yeah, right now, yeah. we don't have an answer. You know, it's okay to not have an answer for things, but you know, when you don't have an answer for anything, it's kind of like, yeah, you know, yeah. come up with something eventually. The theory guys. that answers nothing. So, <laughs> I mean, and Ryan, I, I want to uh, jump ahead. I know we're in the focus section, but that the cover of the magazine, yeah. what's on the cover? You got the Fantastic Fish Flyers, yeah. almost like your favorite burger. <laughs> well, that's kind of, kind of an inside joke because there's a restaurant we go to and they got the fly fisher is this really good ahi tuna burger. So that's not quite the same thing. I don't think, uh, I think that's ahi tuna. <laughs> and by the way, tuna is a predator of this fly fish, mm-hmm. this, this fish that can fly. So let's go ahead and talk about that one really quick because I thought that one was pretty cool. Yeah, the things, yeah, it's pretty cool. It's this fish that basically it'll swim really fast and then kind of like do an angle out of the water and then it'll pop up out of the water, then use these little wings and glide above the water at pretty fast speeds, which is pretty cool. They actually, I think it was in the 1970s, because the fish uh, family is called the Exocentidae. In the military in the 1970s, named the Exotech missile, kind of after these things. Oh yeah, I remember that. Yeah, so it's kind of interesting. So a lot of times we talk about engineers like to reuse God's ideas. But this time, you know, it's in the military. He's like, oh, let's, let's name our missile after this thing. Yeah. And, you know, this article does a really good job of explaining really the intelligent design, the engineering of this thing. And the thing that caught my eye, so no pun intended, well, maybe pun intended, is the design of its eye so that it can see well underwater and out of water. And that's incredible. You know, I don't know if you remember for a while, evolutionists, it's long been debunked, but they would claim that our human eye was wired backwards. Wow. Tell God the creator. I mean, on Judgment Day, and you're going up there, and he's like, why did you think I designed the eye backwards? You know, it was so crazy. And and then, you know, like the octopus eye was claimed to be a better design. Well, that, that eye was designed to see underwater. But even more recently, I don't know, about eight or nine years ago, science did uncover the fact that the way the eye is wired, it makes us see even better in daylight. So that was always a bogus argument. But this particular fish eye has a design that allows it to see well both in and out of water. It's remarkable. It is really cool. Because I know when I try to, when I'm swimming or something, I open my eyes underwater. Like some people are good at it, but most things hurt when I do it. So it's like to... How does something like that evolve? You have this fish that decides to, you know, it somehow evolves the ability to pop out of the water, which is impressive enough, but then it can't see anything up there. And then, like, like how does that evolve? You need all this stuff to just come together. And another thing I thought was really interesting is there's a brief part in the article where it talks about there's been 16 different flying fish fossils, but they've decided that those flying fish aren't precursors to the flying fish we see today. So then you have to go to, oh, well, this stuff evolved independently multiple times wow. if they're not in the same tree. Yeah. So then then they use the term convergent evolution, which is basically to the same thing 
evolving and completely separately in different things. They have to use that for a lot of the different eyes. They use it for the octopus eye too. And it so makes not it sound only like it... they've got an explanation mm-hmm. when they don't. It's fantasy. Yeah, because mm-hmm. they're basically saying, oh, this miracle this miracle actually happened multiple times for this to happen. Yeah, down independent lines. It's like we were talking about the eye just earlier. They claim that the eye and all these different animals evolved 40 independent times separate from each other. And imagine how complex the eye is. And the claim that because they can't explain using common descent of how these eyes are similar between creatures that are so far apart on their supposed evolutionary tree, they claim it evolved 40 separate times. So here they are, again, evoking a rescue device that the person who isn't paying attention, who has that same, frankly, religious belief, they'll just accept it. But again, this is counter evidence to something that you believe happened by random chance, random mutations in that, and this blind selection process all happening independently. It's remarkable. And, you know, like I like to say, shooting fish in a barrel. (laughs) (laughs) Since we're talking about flying fish and my favorite burger at 5280 is the name of the restaurant. They got the fly fisher. That thing's awesome. If you're ever in Colorado, you got to try that. But it is good. Yep. So, Brian, in here, they talk about some of the theories of how this thing could have evolved. So, one of the discredited theories was that they evolved flight to save energy. But it turns out that they actually use more energy when they travel in the air. <laughs> and then another crackpot idea was that it gives them a way to avoid predators in the ocean. Well, you know, other fish, they do pretty well overall. I mean, there's still lots of fish. and, and the, ones, the, other... the ones that don't fly seem to, you know, survive. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. And this fish can move quick, too. So it's not like it would need to fly. It's kind of. Yeah. And not only that, it does have a, this article mentions that it does have a predator while it's flying. And this thing's called a a frigate bird. You know, that's another thing. I've, I've, have you ever heard of a frigate bird? I spelled like the, you know, the ship. I mean, I know uh, what ship. the ship is. Yeah. I don't know what the bird yeah. is. It has predators while it's flying, too, you know, because it's all part of a fallen creation. But it's just a lame attempt to try to explain how does something like this evolve? And again, that eye to be so well in tuned with being able to, you know, when God created this thing, imagine Jesus thinking, okay, I, I'm going to think, I think it's cool. I'm going to create a flying fish. But oh, I better make sure that this thing. Can, you know, I want this thing to be able to see really well underwater and while it's out of water. Because mm-hmm. otherwise, like you said, when you go swimming, we're not designed. Our, God didn't feel like it was that critical to make us be able to, to see as well as we see when we're out of water as when we're in water. Yeah, I certainly don't see very well when I'm underwater. I, I hate opening my eyes unless I got a snorkel mask on. That's about mm-hmm. the only time mm-hmm. I open my eyes because I just don't, I don't do that kind of thing. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so... Okay, Ryan, we're almost out of time. Is there any last article you'd like to share, maybe from the focus section? There's so many good articles, and this particular edition, by the way, is volume 46, number one. It's the latest edition of Creation Magazine. You can get this thing at creation.com, and I'd recommend subscribing to it. It's long been our favorite magazine. It's very well put together. You can buy them, put them on coffee tables at doctor's offices when you're done with them. Share them with stewardess on the plane like we've done, giving it to people at different places once you've read them. Great ways to get the truth of creation out there. And they're aesthetically pleasing, too. So it's not just like a, for lack of a better word, boring read. Like yeah. you, you get yep. to read about interesting stuff, but also like the visuals are really good in it, too, which just, you know, add to the add to the appeal of it and what makes it so good. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, but anyway, one last one I thought was good. 
we've talked about you know this stuff before but it's just another one on what feels like mountains of evidence of dna being found in things that are supposed to be extremely old and the one in here is now a turtle so it says dna in turtle fossil challenges millions of years and it's just another one where once again in this turtle fossil they found surviving cells in there and dna inside those cells just another one of the feels like we talk about one almost every time on this show now. Yeah, absolutely. DNA being found, and you know, we all know how easy DNA breaks down. Yeah, so it's to very even, fragile. Mm-hmm, to wow. even last, probably this turtle would assume they might, I don't think they, they say in here how long, because the evolutionists say they expect this turtle to be between 22 and 131,000 years old. I don't think it says about how old they expect this one to be in the creation timeline, but probably like, let's say it died in the flood. So it's like 4,000 years ago. Yeah. For that to survive 4,000 years is impressive. I mean, let alone 130,000. Like, that's just... Yeah, because, D- again, you mentioned DNA is so fragile. And one of the greatest arguments, and you can go back and watch our Man on the Street, Ryan, where you mm-hmm. were asking people at uh, Cherry Creek Mall about dinosaur soft tissue and the fact that we're finding DNA even now in these soft tissue finds of dinosaur bones. There's no way those dinosaurs are millions of years old. They can't be. And DNA is so fragile. And it's funny because on this evolution wiki page, they still claim that if you found DNA in dinosaur bones, then that would be evidence for creation. And they haven't taken that out. They don't realize (laughs) it's been found. It's like somebody should edit that page for them. But, and Ryan, I'm kind of surprised you brought up this article about turtles because I know you're not a big turtle guy. (laughs) (laughs) I like to use the straws. What can I say? (laughs) So that's kind of an inside joke. We were at a restaurant once and, when they were going through that fad where they stopped giving you a straw and Ryan told the way, told the waitress, yeah, I'd like to have a straw because I'm just not a big turtle guy. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, and I've used that ever since. So you can find, kind of gauge whether or not the uh, waiter or waitress has a good sense of humor. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so Ryan, well, thanks for sitting in for Doug. Who, uh, oh yeah. You know, thanks for having me. Always yep. love to be on. Always love to talk about the magazine. Yep. And we'll have a future show, Ryan, because I want to talk not just creation magazine but we had a presentation i did a presentation at your school quite a few years now maybe five probably about seven eight years ago or wait a minute man time goes by fast (laughs) you've been out of college for like five years so we're going back to high school well anyways we want to have a show where we just focus a half hour or so on just why this whole show is important and why genesis is important and why it reminded me that we need to do that show is in our interview a couple weeks ago with dr tour not the interview from last week but two weeks ago where we talked about origin of life this professor cronin from harvard had posted on twitter that origin of life research is a sham and then some lady responded to him yeah, but not like the myth of Genesis. I mean, everything is an attack on Genesis. It all starts there. The world is attacking Genesis. And so you and I need to do a show just to kind of refresh the audience of why it's important to defend Genesis. Mm-hmm, so. mm-hmm. Really important, really important. Because, yeah. you know, we this, this show is fun to do, but, you know, there's a reason that this stuff's important to talk about. So. Yeah. That'll be a fun that'll be a fun show to do too whenever we get time for it. Yep, and we'll do that hopefully in the next couple months. So for Ryan Williams, I'm Fred Williams of Real Science Radio. May God bless you. In the-